starting with the end in mind. It's probably the single most important aspect of your investing journey that can accelerate your timeline to achieving your goals. Learn from today's guest, Jennifer Beatles, who has virtually done it all within the real estate investing space, but really changed her life in just a four-year period. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate, where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy, managing partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital, a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income-producing apartment buildings. Hey, investors. Welcome back to another episode of Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate. Today, I am sitting down with my good friend, Jennifer Beatles. Now, Jennifer is a serial real estate entrepreneur. She's a coach, a world traveler, which is how we connected. We both share that passion. And she's on a mission to teach others how to fund their best lives through real estate investing. She has 15 years of experience across seven states and has reached financial freedom through a variety of investment strategies, including the Burr Methods, Value Add Multifamily, which is, of course, what we do, Build to Rent, Assisted Living, Private Funding and Financing, and a lot of this was out of state as well. So, Jennifer, we are really excited to have you here on the show. Hey, Justin. Great to be here with you today. I'm so excited to talk about this because I think how I was initially drawn to you was kind of that lifestyle that you had built. And I think that's something that so many people don't really realize. One big difference in real estate, in my opinion, is lifestyle change. Like you can quit your job and have cash flow supporting you. There's a lot of people who go to work every day, unfortunately, who hate their jobs, but they're millionaires, but they can't access that money because it's a retirement account or they don't want to realize gains in the stock market. So what was your journey start like? I actually got started in my early twenties. I purchased my first home at age 21. I had really no desire to become a real estate investor at that point. I just wanted to own a home that happened to be 2007, which wasn't necessarily (laughs) the best time to buy a home. However, I saw the opportunity to create value within real estate. I thought it was so interesting. Of course, at that time, the banks were lending 100%. And so I thought it was so great that it would own an asset. The bank was kind of the largest like shareholder in that asset, and yet I controlled it. And so I bought this single family home. It was zoned multifamily. So that was my smart decision made as a 21-year-old that really didn't know what I was doing and purchased that home, started rehabbing it. The entire plan and the vision for that property, that very first property was fix it up, rent it out, scrape it, and essentially build multifamily. And then mid-2008, before the market totally tanked, the property value lost like half its value. But that was my initial kind of entry into real estate. And then from there, I got into the development space. So I'm actually former spec home builder, developer, just north of Seattle, which has zero freedom. So I love that you started this with freedom because I think in the beginning as a newer investor, I was kind of going through like the buffet line, if you will, of all the different opportunities, flipping, spec home building, private lending, buying at the auction, doing a little bit of everything. And finally, there was a point in 2010 where I looked at my husband and I said, this is great. We have all these flips going on. We have these new construction projects. You're working full-time. I'm a full-time real estate agent, but we had zero freedom. Like our weekends were spent rehabbing properties 24 seven. And so that was a pivotal moment where we set a five-year goal. And at that point, 2010, we actually had some negative 
cash flow properties and like negative equity, probably a couple hundred thousand dollars, if I'm just being honest. And I said, let's net worth 1 million. And I want to replace your six figure salary that my husband was earning. And we got there four years later and kind of just went from there. Yeah. I love it because I mean, it's just like what you said. And a lot of people who end up investing with us or in other syndications, it's pretty similar. They're very successful at what they do. Maybe they flip or they wholesale homes or something and a lot of money in that space to be made. But like you said, it's just this huge trade-off of time and you are never off work. There's always something to be had or you're chasing the next acquisition. You can't stop chasing acquisitions just because you have a lot of projects going because your pipeline has to stay full. And the money is great, but I think people progress through phases of their lives where that's no longer the number one thing. And like you said, that time just becomes so important. So you have that vision, you have that goal. I guess what was your steps in transitioning that? Was it to start buying long-term? Because one of the things I was going to ask you as well is you've had so many of these niches that you've pursued. Is that something you would do all over again? Or do you think you should narrow down into one niche and really master it and know it really, really well? And how did that plan, I guess, start on your path to really having the freedom that you wanted? So in my opinion now, having been in this business for 15 years, it's all about starting with the end in mind designing that ideal lifestyle and working backward. So I got really purposeful in 2010 on that. And then it was very easy for me to make investment decisions. Mm -hmm. It was, okay, how can we have more freedom? How can we spend maybe four or five months abroad and have passive income streams coming in while we're riding gondolas in Venice and sitting on the beach in Greece? And so it became very easy for me to say, no to certain projects after I got clarity on exactly what that lifestyle would look like. And so I do find Justin, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I do see investors kind of struggling with this is they, they want to kind of try it all, do it all. And yet there's no clarity on what the end game is or what that lifestyle looks like in my twenties. I didn't know what that looked like. I really just wanted to try a little bit of everything, which actually served me very well because I developed an early skill set and actually a habit that still exists today of finding and underwriting deals. Mm-hmm. So in my opinion, that is the most important skill set that an investor can have is because as you know, Justin, I mean, the money is easy. It's very easy with a great deal that you found to find the money, to find the financing. Financing becomes easy. Everything is easier when you found a deal yeah. that really makes sense and you've underwritten it appropriately. And so I would say, go for it. And I guess patting my early 20 year old self on the back saying that was great. However, those kinds of activities no longer serve me. I have a daughter. We are getting ready to leave in about two and a half weeks to spend our summer in the UK. And so it doesn't make sense for me to pursue projects that take more of my time. But for me, yeah, it's a pretty quick turn. It's pretty quick to stabilize these properties and then move on versus the flip. I think that's the other thing. So I get a lot of real estate agents that are flippers that are having the hurt mindset hurdle Mm -hmm. of, well, how do I go from making in some cases, maybe almost a million dollars a year Mm -hmm. to focusing on these rentals where maybe it's 200 to $300 per unit per month in cash flow? That's peanuts to them. And they have a hard time articulating. I could make a hundred thousand dollars or more on a flip. And you're telling me to go buy these units. <laughs> like, yeah. you can do, yeah, I have to add it up. But I think the big difference is that is also one time income. And yeah. so you flip a property, 
and you get a one-time paycheck that you pay a lot of taxes on. And so you're kind of stuck on this hamster wheel of you always have to find the next deal. So I think for me, fortunately, because I got very clear on the lifestyle that it was really easy to say no to certain projects. I think I mentioned before where it's just that lifestyle. Like I totally agree with you in my early twenties. I didn't care what I had to do. I wanted to be a millionaire and I want to make a million dollars a year, 200 or a hundred thousand of the gold. And you want to make 10,000 a month. And it's like by any means necessary, you just want to do it. And it's articulating that, Hey, that won't last forever. You don't want to do the lifestyle that you're living now forever. And you're going to want to start building if you have five years of runway of building $10,000 a year in passive income, okay, now you're getting pretty significant and you have the choices. So while I do believe it's important to have that phase where you build up a lot of cash, otherwise your road to financial freedom is very long. If you make $50,000 a year, your whole life, and you've got in taxes and you've got expenses. So I agree that there's some good strategy there to doing a high pay activity, but really having that thing in the back of your mind, like, Hey, I'm going to burn out on this. I need to start planning for that burnout now, or maybe I don't burn out by energy, but I burn out by my passion. I want to do something else. I want to have a family. I want to do all of those things. And it's great. You're getting to vacation now, things that you could never have imagined walking away from back when you're flipping and building. Because even if you go on vacation, you're not really there. You're constantly stressing. You're thinking you just can't enjoy yourself. So I want to go back to some of you had mentioned underwriting deals. That's something that is huge. I mean, if you have a really well underwritten deal, like you said, the money tends to come. And for people who maybe aren't in this space, that sounds really weird. When I wasn't in the space, I heard people say, oh, don't worry about the money. And I was saying, isn't the money the most important part? It's really not. It's having that good deal. So you said you're doing multifamily a little bit more now. Is that correct? Yeah, I've been focused on multifamily pretty much since 2010. But then I spent a lot of time with small duplexes, fourplexes. Okay. Yeah. Uh And so... When somebody hears the word underwriting, a lot of times they think of that income, like, hey, if I do this, like it's a cap rate thing. And now a lot of times, just because of where the market's at, a lot of people are seeing cap rates aren't really that relevant because you're buying for potential, not for as is. And I get a lot of feedback on whether that is safe, unsafe, if people are comfortable with that. What is your opinion on underwriting deals in the current environment now in which we're in early May here of 2022? We know rates are going up. We know there's going to be a little bit of a downturn in the market. How are you seeing, I guess, the future of underwriting and how are you changing your underwriting to make sure you're still safe? Excellent question. So I haven't changed my investment criteria since 2010. So for me, I 100% agree with you, Justin. Cap rate does not matter. Mm -hmm. It's all about, does it make money? What is the debt coverage ratio? How well can you cover that debt? That's what the commercial lenders look at. And then also just the overall strategy of the property. So I've purchased some recent multifamily deals that were value add, I would say lower cap than what I would like or what I've maybe bought in at in prior years. However, you bring up this thing of underperforming or not at its full potential. And so that's where with really great underwriting, you can spot that out. And so a lot of the acquisitions that I've been buying are retiring landlords. They're ready to get out and good for them because they've had a long run. Some of these sellers have owned the properties since the eighties. They're not in tune with current market rents. And so in some cases we're seeing 30, 40, maybe even 50% below market rents. And again, that's a huge opportunity. So I can buy the asset, take it over. We do some strategic rent increases. Maybe we don't obviously want to create a major occupancy issue and have our entire property (laughs) vacant. Although I've done that before, 
but through some strategic kind of rent increases and also unit improvements, then we can get the revenue where it should be, stabilize the property, and then refinance. And a lot of times we're still able to refinance maybe in that 12 to 24 month period and get 100% of our initial investment back. And then not to mention that we probably would have gotten maybe 40 to 50% of our initial investment back on the cost segregation and the tax benefits in year one anyway. To that point though, Justin, it doesn't matter to me what the market is doing. Yeah, it's great when we had this interest rate run. I've been telling my investors since 2020, hey, don't get used to these rates. I refinanced a lot of properties that I knew I'd be holding on for maybe the next 10 years, did some cash out refinances, which is fantastic. And now we're underwriting deals with higher interest rates. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's important. I'm seeing a lot of other people's underwriting and they're maybe using lower exit cap rates, some really aggressive debt terms. So I think that it's important to be optimistic and cautious in today's market. When interest rates go up, we take a whole percentage of the population that were entry-level home buyers, and now we've basically essentially put them back into the renter pool. Harsh yeah. reality, I don't make the rules, but we've done that. And so I think that the media says interest rates have gone up, the market's going to crash. We have a lot of maybe fear and scarcity around that. And then yet logic says what will happen when you introduce all of these would-be home buyers into the renter pool it's already scarce. We're already built in that arena. So anyways, I'm still buying. I underwrite at least, I don't know, maybe like three to five deals a day when I'm okay. not traveling, making yeah. a handful of offers every week. Some stick, some don't. Sometimes we get under due diligence, find crazy things out and then don't close. And it's just how and, it goes. And it's interesting because there's always a reason not to buy. It's interest Absolutely. rates are too high or, oh, the market's too hot. And those things tend to flop with each other. So right now the market's been, quote unquote, too hot for people to buy. And now those same investors, when I catch up with them, they're saying, oh, I would buy, but interest rates are too high now. It's like, well, you're always going to find the reason. But at the heart of the issue is the supply side issue. And I've attended a lot of talks and presented a lot of graphs of seeing population growth versus supply. And it's a scary and terrifying road of projections for 2030, 2040, 2050, well, we're not going to catch up. Right. And so I totally agree that that renter pool is going to continue to grow. And there's always reasons not to buy, but at the same time, there's always reasons to buy. One of my favorite sayings is don't wait to buy real estate, it's buy real estate and wait and kind of let the markets take those. So you had mentioned a lot too, that you do a lot out of state, correct? Yeah. Okay. So I'm like in Seattle, Washington and now in Phoenix, but everything I own is pretty much in other states. Why is that? My dollar goes further. Obviously you can go to other countries and live your best life and your dollar goes further. So that, and then also location diversification. Mm -hmm. So I was in the development new construction space when the market crashed. I witnessed a lot of very smart, intelligent multimillionaires lose everything in the last crash. Mm -hmm. They had all of their real estate in one market. And so I learned from that as a 20 something and made a smart decision to not have all of my real estate in one market. We own in seven, soon to be eight different states Got and it. feel really comfortable about that. Yeah. And so market to you in that context, at least physical location, or do you mean asset class? Like maybe you have some luxury, some low grades, some workforce housing, or is it more of a geographical thing for you? 
Geographical, correct. Okay. Yes. Got it. And so what is, I guess, that secret? Because statistically speaking, most people should invest out of state from where they live. Most people kind of live in those coastal cities where it's less investor friendly. Like you said, your dollar really doesn't get much and you're probably not even cash flowing anymore at this point. You're just banking on the appreciation. So statistically, more people out there than not are going to be looking to invest out of state. How do you do that comfortably? Because you have some great systems and processes and you've built great teams, which is kind of the spoiler, I guess, to maybe what you were going to say. But what's the secret to building that successful out-of-state portfolio where you know like that investment is good? I don't need to be there and there every weekend. Excellent. Well, in my opinion, it really starts with the market. And so when I started kind of asking myself the question of where did I want to invest, I started by kind of going down this research rabbit hole of asking myself, where are people moving to? And where are the jobs going? And where are the wages increasing? And where can I find opportunity to essentially get maybe these higher cap rate environments Mm -hmm. and stretch that dollar further? And so that research led me, I kind of have a couple of systems and processes for doing this, but a lot of times I'll find the major cities with the most inward population migration, draw a one hour radius and find suburbs because typically those markets are incredibly expensive and also lacking cash flow. They don't really fit my model and are very competitive. Sometimes it's really hard to get in with commercial brokers into these almost like blue chip markets where everyone wants to be. So I've identified certain markets where the tenants are fine commuting and yet maybe the real estate values are 50% less, but the rents are significantly higher as a relative to like a price to rent ratio. Identify those markets. And then I just cold call brokers. Well, that's one of our lead sources. Cold call brokers. I love to work with, I would say maybe not your big commercial brokers, I kind of found this niche of residential agents that own investment properties that seem to know everybody in town that have the lead on these, I would say, I don't know, maybe six to 50 unit properties. That's my sweet spot. So I'm not typically syndicating deals. I'm looking for just direct ownership, direct buys. And that's kind of been my sweet spot. And so because I have this investor community behind me, I have the benefit of saying, well, when you find a deal send it to me. And now it's sent through our platform. If I won't buy it, guarantee you I have an investor that will. And so it's kind of this compelling opportunity for these investor agents to maybe focus on not so much client lead generation, but deal lead generation. And then they just send it to us. And it's almost, if it's a good deal, somebody's going to buy it. So that's the, I guess, like deal sourcing and or market selection. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of it is the property managers. So almost everything that I buy is a value add, meaning I'm buying, maybe underperforming, doing some strategic renovations, or maybe it's just some rent increases. I've bought some properties recently that we just raised the rents and the tenants stayed kind of unfortunately, but kind of fortunately, we didn't actually renovate anything. We didn't yeah. put into the property. <laughs> but most of the time, the property managers are acting as our project managers. And so we'll be due diligence. A lot of times I'll build a team around a deal. So I'll get a one-off deal from a real estate agent that I maybe cold called, or they found me somewhere online and we'll call around for property managers and find one that will project manage and oversee the project for us. And so we've just kind of taken that system and process, all of these different markets 
And it's just time and time again, it works. Now, of course, they follow a checklist. So some markets have like, I don't invest in any markets with rent control, but there's rental inspections, rental certifications. Some markets have just maybe different things. Sometimes multifamily, you have like individual water sewer meters, which is really unique. So it's a little different. Something that jumps out to me, I just kind of assume other listeners might too, is going about an hour outside of those major cities. And a lot of people, I guess, have some kind of hesitancy with maybe investing in a city that they've never heard. Like if you say, hey, I have a property in Nashville, they're like, okay, great. But if you have this property an hour out of Nashville that they just never heard of, they assume it's a really bad market and it's just not the case. In a lot of these places, especially in the middle of the country, it's not uncommon to drive an hour because that's just the lifestyle they like. They live it. They live a slower paced lifestyle. Somebody from New York would never do that, but they walk to work most of the time or take the subway. But out in kind of those country areas, the Midwest, yeah, totally normal to drive an hour and and they love their cars. They love their trucks. And that's just the life they live. And so I love what you said about that is really branching out to find those feeder cities, which is what we call them. And that feed kind of those smaller suburbs. And so you're building out this team. So you find a good deal. How is that vetting process? Because not to scare people, but if you mess up on that property management, project management selection, that could be crucial. I mean, absolutely crucial. So what are some things that you use to vet? Are there certain questions? Is it more of a gut feeling? Is it you just want the biggest and the best? Or how do you go through that selection process? Yeah. So I actually have a list. It's called 35 questions to ask a property manager. (laughs) I don't ask all 35 because that would probably feel like an interrogation. I'm happy to share that as a resource for anyone that's interested. Basically, I follow a script. And a lot of times, just like through experience, I'm not like articulating, but just kind of following those questions. And a lot of times it'll be, Hey, what do you think of this property? I love asking open-ended questions and then just being quiet and seeing what kind of feedback I get back. And then I'll ask questions. This is maybe like not so much interviewing the property manager after we've gone through that, ask them what they think about the current rents and then what they think the highest potential rents might be. And then what we need to do to get from point A, which is where it is currently to the highest potential, which is point B, and then what that would cost. And if they can answer all of those questions over the phone, sometimes they'll say, oh, that's not me. I need to get you to somebody else and I'm okay with that. But yeah, we've just been very lucky. And I think it's because of the process of asking all of these questions. Get to property managers who can say, well, your rents are currently low. I think we can bump them up 15% without doing renovations. If a tenant leaves, then we'll do renovations. Maybe you're looking to spend $5,000 a unit, and then we can get the 30 whatever percent rent bump. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that property manager who can tell me where we're at, tell me where we could be, what it'll cost so that I can run my underwriting appropriately. And then I'm also asking them seasonality, which invested in Western Michigan, which is a new market for us a couple of months ago. And... I've not invested in a market where it gets a lot of snow. And so the property manager kind of educated me on, okay, we need to get a snow quote and we pay this guy like ahead of time. And then that gets us for the Mm -hmm. entire year. And so kind of learning through these property managers. And then the other just practice is a lot of times I just go in with a really open mind. And I think sometimes when you have a lot of experience, you think you know it all. And so I enter into these new markets, assuming that I know nothing. And I just ask the local people. 
I like that. And it's a little pro tip that you actually snuck in is thinking about the snow and the seasonality, because that's something a lot of people, if they analyze rental property, especially multifamily, because those are exclusively rental properties. You might look at, oh, what people call the T3 or the trailing three. Well, if it was summertime and you're buying at the end of the summer, you're not aware that maybe every winter you have to incur an extra three, $4,000 for the winter to clear the snow and for the salt and all of those things. So weather, what's that like? Do we need extra insurance for hail, for any kind of water? Is it by major rivers or lakes that it could flood it? And insurance companies are funny that way because if you're like one block or one foot closer to the water, your rate can just shoot up. And so asking all those questions, getting hyper-local with it is really going to give you an awesome understanding of exactly what you're getting into. I love everything you talked about. I think a lot of people can really resonate with your experience and the lifestyle that you build and really starting backwards. So how can people get a hold of you and who should maybe get in touch? Again, I don't syndicate. So for anyone that is interested in being a passive investor, obviously reach out to you, Justin, and go that direction. (laughs) But for those that are interested in being an active investor and owning their own real estate, I truly love the operations and the asset management and the deal underwriting. I mean, I probably spend a couple of hours every month on my portfolio. But for those that really want to just direct own and want to get more access to markets and teams and deal flow and kind of learn with this maybe more active operator for lifestyle looks like, then yeah, reach out to me. My website is addicted to ROI.com. And for anyone that wants that 35 questions to ask your property manager document, I'm happy to share. It would be jennifer at addicted to ROI.com. Send me an email and I'm happy to send it to you. Perfect. So listeners, we are going to put all of those links and Jennifer's email in the show notes. And while you're there, of course, if you haven't already, make sure you download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Building Generational Wealth and Passive Cash Flow Through Multifamily Real Estate. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Justin. That was great.